0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food video supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit koren.com. Hello,
1: welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcast live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi wame ni but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify the this program with my co-guests. My guest today is Todd Bellamy, who is the owner and brewer of Father's Star Sake in Massachusetts. Todd joined us in episode 36 to discuss his previous brewery called Dovetail Sake in 2016. And his success at Dovetail Sake led him to the opening of his new brewery, Wildstar Sake, in 2021. And Todd not only has been producing high quality, authentic style of sake, but has also witnessed the development of the American sake culture as an insider. Now, we have dozens of notable sake breweries in the U.S., and this is an exciting time to drink locally made, delicious Japanese sake in America. So today we'll discuss how Tot successfully convinced American beverage lovers to drink Japanese sake in Massachusetts, his new products at Father Star Sake that would inspire sake lovers and novices, and the fascinating recent changes in American sake production, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan Eats is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, which you will listen to, and subscribe to Japan Eats. And Please write a review. We, we appreciate your feedback. Now let's start a conversation with Pop Tony. Our talk, welcome back to the show.
3: Hey, thanks a lot. I'm sorry it took me so long to get back and do a second episode. <laughs>
1: You're a busy man, so yeah, there's a lot going on, and then uh, it was 2016, so yeah, we'll talk about what happened and what you're working on, and there's so much to share with you. So, so for our listeners who have not listened to Episodes 36, could you tell us uh, your super unique background and how you eventually got into sake making in New England?
3: Uh, absolutely. Um, I... Lived in Japan for a few years. uh, And while living there, I fell in love with fresh, delicious sake and Japanese food. Uh, And when I returned to the United States, uh, I just couldn't let it go. So I started um, trying to encourage my love of sake and Japanese food by making a lot of things at home. Uh, Luckily for me at the time, uh, I worked for eight years in the American craft beer industry. Uh, and got a lot of great education about brewing and brewing science. So uh, I kept home brewing sake and uh, taking occasional trips back to Japan to learn sake brewing in some really great breweries. Um, and then the home brewing just kind of took on a mind of its own. So uh, we built you know bigger batches, bigger batches, and then uh, it became pretty clear that sake should just be a career, not a hobby.
1: Mm. Right. So, and then you missed out something very, very (laughs) interesting pieces. So you studied Japanese at college Mm. and then you worked uh, under a sword maker to become a sword maker. Yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I've done a couple, uh, uh, I've done a lot of varied things. I'm a bit of a tinkerer. I like to make stuff. uh, And so... You know, I also worked for almost 10 years in the restaurant industry, uh, studied Japanese and linguistics uh, at University of Massachusetts at Amherst, uh, and then um, just really wanted to go to Japan to kind of see where I wanted to apply that knowledge. And so at the time, I studied martial arts and I had an interest in swords, uh, so I convinced a crazy countryside sword maker to take me on as an apprentice for a while so the first year i lived in japan um i did indeed uh, work under a sword master and was his apprentice uh to learn more about sword making mm.
1: and then there was the time that uh first night you stayed at sword maker's house you had a sip of real japanese sake and uh, that yeah changed the whole
3: thing. <laughs> absolutely that's kind of yeah well that's really my aha moment but um yeah, we kind of celebrated my arrival. Uh, we very informally uh, sitting on the floor. Uh, you know, I think I used a coffee mug to drink the sake out of because we didn't have enough like glasses. Um, and the sake was really amazing. Up till then, I'd only had very, very inexpensive mass produced sake uh, in college, and I had no idea what real sake tasted like. So I remember distinctly uh, because I had a big food background. Um, I remember distinctly thinking not only how complex the sake was, but also how it went really well with snacks and food items that we were snacking on at the time. Um, And so I just kind of filed it away in the back of my head, thinking maybe they had like a special bottle of sake for my arrival. And it wasn't until a couple of years later uh, that I found out that it was a very inexpensive kind of everyday sake. So. Uh, It still blew my mind, uh, but it was, um, yeah, it was um, Otokoyama Junmai Ginjo.
1: That's a pretty good Uh, I have to say.
3: Yeah, (laughs) at the time, I don't know what's going on now in Japan, but at the time when I lived in Japan, I remember running into a bottle of it and it was, you know, a big 1.8 liter bottle was under $20 or under $15. (laughs) It was was shockingly cheap to me. So, Mm. um, yeah, I was surprised, but I've since learned that, I'll, you know, most of the sake that comes out of Japan is, you know, equally as delicious and complex and interesting. And So, yeah.
1: Mm, right. Well, that's the, the beauty of sake, Japanese sake making, because um, they say ne- now uh, operate, the number of operating sake breweries uh, could be even under 1,000. And they are, mm-hmm. they are really factory-made um, factory made, um sake like breweries but the majority that we are talking about they are all original, family owned very right. traditional and it's it's not just uh making beverage it's a whole history and culture and styles and just the whole thing in one mm. um model so that's the one thing i think you know more than many other people in japan even
3: oh yeah absolutely um yeah i think it's uh, we we do get some customers who um, come to the tap room and, and sort of assume that because sake is Japanese, Japanese people know a lot about it. Uh, but that's not true, right? Even the average person in Japan doesn't really know a lot about brewing sake or uh, that kind of thing. It's, you know, it's around, it's in their life, but they don't know a lot about the making of it. Um, but to your point, I think it's interesting. I think people eventually, especially this day, uh, new consumers, new drinkers, new discoverers to sake are looking for authenticity, right? So they don't, they want a brand, but they want it to be really connected to who's making this, where the ingredients come from. Uh, And that fact is pretty uh, much an everyday fact in Japanese artisanal breweries in Japan. Uh, And so right now, even though sake is not a huge part of the Japanese alcohol market, Um, the only portion of that that's growing is premium sake, right? So even in Japan, consumers are going, hey, we're not drinking sake all the time, but when we do drink it, we're looking for handmade, authentic, artisanal beverages, not, you know, we're going to immediately reach for a mass-produced sake.
1: Mm, Right. And, uh, well, thanks to the internet, um, all those social media, we have plenty Mm. of information and the stories behind each bottle which I think is um, why we eat or drink or anything we put into our body because we know the story and we want to appreciate as much as we can. So sake it's packed with all those episodes and culture and passion mm. and love and all those things. Uh, I think it's easy to love, um, I think.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I've actually seen – it's funny you mentioned that. I've actually seen an uptick – in small Japanese breweries, jumping onto Instagram or YouTube or whatever, um, I've seen a real big uptick in that in the last year, uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, they're they're a little behind the times, as, you know, compared to the average American beer brewery. But uh, it's cool that we're starting to see like this real window into what's it like to live in the mountains of Japan and grow your own rice and make it into sake. Like it's so fascinating. Uh, kind of peek into that world.
1: Right. Yeah, in Japan, uh, there is a uh, gaiatsu, that's the term outside pressure. So people, mm-hmm. Japanese people tend to recognize, oh, oh, wow, what we're doing is very important to valuable because out, people outside of Japan say we are valuable. So that's kind of like mm. the mindset. And the demand outside of Japan is really leading the growth, regrowth of Japanese sake brewery or revival of the Japanese sake mm. industry. So yeah, I think this, those um, social media energy is. I think it's uh, becoming more important, and uh, it's. I'm, I feel hopeful about <laughs> the. Oh, is. I do.
3: Yeah, I absolutely feel hopeful too. I also um, kind of like what we saw in the sushi space. Uh, we are actually just now starting to see some reverse uh influence of the american sake brewing world on the japanese world Uh, it's a really new thing but you're starting to see younger people uh build smaller breweries. uh you know building a sake brewery in japan i don't i couldn't tell you the last large sake brewery anyone built in japan it's been quite a while but um you're starting to see just a few younger people who are like hey you know, I don't want to build this giant monolithic thing that cost a fortune with all this. I'm just going to, you know, make thousand liter batches in a room with, you know, equipment that I kind of cobble together from around several industries, you know, beer brewing, winery, that kind of thing. And so we're starting to see that, um, you know, and just like in sushi, you can now get like a California roll in Tokyo. So, mm. uh, some sushi trends actually reversed, influenced Japan. And we're just seeing that in the sake world, and it's pretty exciting.
1: Mm, right. And then one of those uh, exciting uh, movements in the sake industry in Japan and globally, it's definitely American brewing is inspiring um, Japanese sake industry as well. So you are definitely one of the leaders. So
3: I, I don't know about lead Leaders sounds a little loaded, but <laughs> I'm certainly doing the best I can.
1: Yeah, and so we're going to talk about the new brewery father's Sake in a moment, but first let's talk about your first brewery called Dovetail Sake. So, you opened Mm -hmm. Dovetail Sake in Massachusetts in February 2014 and had a great success. So, tell us what your sake making philosophy was at Dovetail Sake, and uh, what kind of sake did you make at Dovetail?
3: Oh. Yeah, sure. So I did not own Dovetail Sake. Uh, I was the only employee and I helped open it and I brewed the sake and uh, did a lot of other jobs, but I did not own the company. So it wasn't, you know, mine to continue with. Um, but uh, my brewing at Dovetail is very similar to my brewing today. So we were really committed to uh, using Sakamai. Um, which is, you know, rice grown specifically for making sake. So um, we were lucky on timing. Uh, We had settled on another rice and we had a problem with our label and our labeling machine. So we paused brewing. Uh, The very next week, we got a phone call that the first batch of Yamada Nishiki was available uh, from Isbell Farms in Arkansas. And so we jumped on the chance Uh, to be one of the first breweries to use American-grown Yamada Nishiki. Mm.
0: Uh, So
3: we were committed to using, you know, the best ingredients we could get. uh, And that's, um, you know, really worked out for us. So uh, all three of the sake we ended up making uh, in the, you know, interim years were Yamada Nishiki 60% mill rate. So ginjo style Sake. Um, And uh, no, it was a great success.
1: Mm, right, so uh, basically, uh, before you got uh, Yamada Nishiki and Isabel Farms, that's um, kind of the cheerleader of American sake making because that's the, one of the very few uh, farms that can pr- uh, produce sake, mm. rice for, sa- sakamai rice for uh, making sake. So, right. yeah, the, the, um, Chris and Mark Isabel came here to talk about oh, nice. their production before. And uh, it's just fascinating. They're having fun supporting, um, you know, the sake industry. They have nothing to do with Japanese culture. Originally, they happened to work with Japanese um, industry, but it's amazing. They're so passionate about creating new kinds of rice and of opportunities to support American sake uh, production. So anyway, so... Um, yeah, the other breweries uh, can use non-sakamai, which is a cut and table rice that you can eat, mm-hmm. but um, there's a special quality to use sakamai, right? So how do you describe the difference between sake made with sakamai and other table rice?
3: Yeah, so the large difference uh, with sakamai versus table rice is uh, in table rice, um all your macronutrients, so protein and fat and um, carbohydrates, are mixed together evenly throughout the grain of rice. Uh, and so when you eat it, you get all of its food value, and it's easy to keep a high food value, which I'm sure was important for people long ago. So uh, sake brewing rice, uh, there's about 140 different cultivars of sake brewing rice in Japan. Um over centuries, uh, Japanese farmers uh, isolated strains of rice um, where all of the starch is concentrated at the center. And so what that allows you to do is mill away around the starch and get rid of proteins and fats, which don't ferment into anything <laughs> um, using the, the, the yeast that you need to use to make sake. So, Um, As you mill the rice further and further down, you're getting rid of proteins and fats and sort of cleaning up the sake. And a higher percentage of your rice is now starch, which you can convert into sugar and ferment into alcohol. So uh, in the Japanese system, the lower down you mill the rice, the higher quality the sake is. Um, And so junmai sake can be anything and below 60% is ginjo sake, and below 50% is daiginjo.
1: Mm. Right, so if you use sakamai, uh, it's efficient to create purified flavor uh, that you would look for in sake. And also, I mean, like, you know, milling rate is a contentious thing because the junmai, which could be around 70% of um, rice remaining,
3: Jumai used to be 70%, but they got rid of that in Japan. Yeah,
1: like, uh, they they keep changing the name. I mean, now, ginjo and daiginjo. And jumai just means pure rice, no added alcohol. But Hmm. uh, uh, honjozo, that's another category. And and we we don't need to get into the details. But I think uh, the milling rate means the remaining uh, grain, People tend to think it's more refined if you have a smaller portion of grain left over because you only mm. get the purified center. But right. do you agree? Like, I, know, I, I like 70% remaining can be very, very sake flavored. And then like 23%, that could be very elegant sake, but it doesn't necessarily mm. mean that it's a higher quality sake. So um, that's a great uh, categories so of ginjo, daiginjo, Um, Hmm. and honjozo, I'm not sure. What's your opinion about that?
3: Yeah, so I feel kind of like you, um, obviously as a brewer, I tend to see the whole uh, problem as a scientific one. So, um, you know, in Japan, when they say the grade of sake, um, to me, as you mill the rice further and further down, the sake becomes, I don't know, more ethereal. Uh, You have less kind of round flavors to work with. It's like a really razor tight uh, expression of rice. Um, So if that means higher quality to you, then it does. Uh, However, the definition of that is wrapped up in the fact that um, I believe it originated with like tax payments in Japan. uh, And as you mill the rice down, it gets very expensive. And so, to give you an example, we currently use Yamada Nishiki 70% uh, because I also like those more rounded flavors, more sort of complexity. Um, however, the difference between the Yamada Nishiki at 70% that I use and 45%, which would be if I wanted to make a daiginjo, the rice cost to me is double. Mm. So. In Japan, they kind of had to sell it as a higher grade sake because they have to charge double, triple, quadruple the price of mm. a regular sake. So you right. have to get the consumer to see that as a benefit for paying a higher price. And it seems like the Japanese brewers have been very successful in doing that.
1: Right, right. So uh, the point is for listeners, uh, if you go to... Uh, uh, you know, Japanese restaurant or any restaurant and find mm. uh, the grades of sake, junmai, um, I don't know the uh, daiginjo, ginjo, uh, honjozo. And the milling rate doesn't necessarily mean uh, the taste is better or not. It's just about your that's... preference. But then price tend to be higher if it's more milled down because <laughs> uh, the original one yeah. is lost. So <laughs> that's the, the thing. But uh, it's all about what you like and that you taste and some different labels, different breweries, as different styles, and you just have to keep trying different things regardless of the meeting yeah. rate.
3: Yeah, for me, if I'm talking to a beginner sake drinker, uh, I just tell them to look for the word junmai.
0: Mm.
3: Like, if they just take away one fact, I just say to the you know consumer, just go, Liz, don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about where it comes from. Uh, there's two easy things for a beginning sake drinker. Look for the word junmai which just means that no added alcohol uh, was added during fermentation. Uh, and so it's just pure expression of rice fermentation. Uh, the other thing is, luckily, in America, um, sake is very fairly priced. So if you buy a $15 bottle of sake or you buy a $30 bottle of sake, the $30 one will always be better than the $15
1: mm.
3: Um, which is a complaint I've heard from many, many people in the wine industry. Uh, I don't really drink wine myself, but there seems to be a lot of disparity in pricing and quality of wine. And that trips up a lot of consumers, I think, early on.
1: Mm, right. Yeah, that's a whole other world to <laughs> discover yeah, yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But, you know, like, uh, if it's not June, Meaning, if it's not junmai, some add alcohol is added. But sometimes it's too round out the taste and style. So, it's, again, it's about um, your preference, right? What kind of style you like. So, um, the key is keep drinking, tasting different styles. <laughs> and you That's find it. Right. That's right. In, right? Um,
3: yeah, so one interesting thing to note about Honjozo sake is that American brewers cannot make it. So uh, the way alcohol, the way sake is handled in the United States, um, we are considered brewers because we're fermenting grain into alcohol. um, And you cannot add a distilled beverage to a brewed beverage in the United States. So Mm. we have to make junmai sake.
1: Interesting. Okay, well, but actually it's a good thing too. Because you can really express the pure rice flavor hmm. and grown, uh, I would say, almost 100% grown in America, right? Um, there are a few exceptions,
3: right? Yeah, there's two, two places that grow Yamada Nishiki. There's Arkansas, Isbell Farms, uh, and then there are some farms in California. Um, and one of the things I, well, for me, I'm on the East Coast ordering... 6,000 kilograms of rice from California is kind of expensive uh, to ship. So, Isbell Farms uh, is much closer to me. Uh, However, uh, I also just love dealing with them. They're really great people. They know a lot about rice. They really care about the success of all of our little tiny breweries. Um, And so, yeah, I would order from them uh, anyways. Uh, But -hmm. yeah, California, just for us on the East Coast, is so far to ship that much rice
1: right that makes sense okay so we'll take a quick break here and when we come back we'll dive into towards new brewery so please stay with us
2: today's program is brought to you by Korin, a supplier of japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies Korin is proud of their japanese culture and traditions but they want you to know that their products are not just for japanese restaurants Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koren's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Korin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit korin.com. Welcome back, you're listening to Japan Eats on HRN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host,
1: Takeo Kateyama, and my guest today is Todd Bellamy, who is the owner and brewer at Father's Star Sake in Massachusetts. Now, Todd joined us in episode 36 to discuss his previous successful brewery, uh, WL Sake, in 2016. So now, 2016 sounds like far away, like uh, seven years ago. So... And you opened your new brewery, Father Star Sake, in 2021. So um, why did you open the new sake uh, brewery?
3: Um, So after my previous brewery closed down, um, I took a few years to work as a consultant in the brewing industry, both in beer and sake, Uh, and I really thought about uh, what my next brewing uh, venture would be. Uh, I always knew it would be a sake brewery. I just uh, wasn't sure uh, what what it would look like uh, and if we could afford to do it. So I took a couple of years to write a business plan um, while I was consulting. And uh, yeah, we eventually got to a point where we could start uh, construction uh, in 2021 uh, and then start serving sake in 2022.
1: Mm. So why did you name your new brewery, Star Sake? Um, So
3: I really wanted the brewery to just be an expression of me. Um, And, uh, you know, certainly the sake would speak for that. Uh, But I also wanted to have fun this time around. I mean, Dovetail was a really great brand, uh, but was rooted in like a very traditional New England aesthetic. Uh, And I wanted to put sort of no framework on what the brand could be. I could, you know, name it after something or, you know, whatever, any subject. And I just, as I kept thinking for months and months and months, I just kept coming back around to my love of science fiction uh, mm. and thought it would be a fun sort of brand to make for people.
1: Right. Yeah. Your website shows the label. <laughs> it's a very, very um, futuristic, I, you know, you really yeah. dream about the universe. Yeah, I
3: do. I've always been a space science junkie. Uh, You know, I love space exploration and uh, all kinds of different science. And so, um, yeah, I've always been that way since I was a little kid.
0: Mm.
1: Right. So one day uh, some aliens get to drink your sake. That'd be amazing.
3: (laughs) It would be amazing. Um, I would also like to be the first sake on the International Space Station. Um, or in the new Artemis station to go around the moon, if they need sake for space, uh, they should just come to me.
1: Mm, Right. So NASA people, did you hear that? Um, Yeah, so um, how, uh, I would say, what's the mission at Wildstar Sake, and um, how different is it from Dovetail?
3: Yeah, so uh, the mission is really to be very, very accessible to everybody, uh, much like a small local beer brewery would be. Um, And so we have a a full taproom where people can come and drink our sake there and talk to us directly. Um, And we do events there and private events and food pop-ups. And so that increases our accessibility. And then the other aspect of accessibility uh, for us is uh, we wanted to use Yamada Nishiki rice, um, but I want to also price our sake at a very accessible point in the market in Massachusetts. Uh, so we use Yamada Nishiki 70 instead of 60 uh, because uh, it lowers the cost of the rice a little bit, which allows us to, to really make our sake accessible to everyone.
1: So the uh, 70 means 70% remating out of the whole grain instead of 60%, 10% less quantity, so it's 10% more expensive, right? That's what you mean,
3: right? Yeah, so 70%, you know, 70% in my mind is sort of the bottom of premium sake in Japan. You can get some very nice 70% uh, milled rice sakes. um, And, you know, we make, I think, great sake. Uh, And so... Uh, it's a really, you know, it's a great rice to use, and you don't have to mill it all the way down to, you know, really ex- have a lot of expression and sort of breath of flavor.
1: Mm. Right. By the way, uh, out of many sakamai, Yamada Nishiki is so-called king of sakamai, so I understand why you want to keep using that specific, um, you know, mm. type of sake.
3: It's also easier on us, by the way. So uh, even though the rice is more expensive, uh, we spend sort of less energy or time on the labor side uh, because it's very easy to steam and very forgiving. It grows great koji. uh, And so um, we actually end up spending less time washing it and less time steaming it and cooling it, everything. So it saves us in other ways.
1: Mm. Okay, so Rice does the work for you instead of you have to work for Yeah, absolutely. Rice. <laughs> absolutely, nice.
3: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so um, you have currently two flagship sake labels. Uh, that's, I like the name FSS001 and FSS002. Mm. Uh, so could you tell us about each?
3: Absolutely, yeah. So we have two styles in the market. I thought, you know, I'm building a local sake market in New England, and I'm the only sake brewery in New England. So uh, I really have to start at the beginning uh, for everybody. So we have one style uh, called In a Strange Land. Uh, It is uh, our flagship filtered sake. And then we have another style called Mountains on the Moon, and it is our flagship nigori sake, or unfiltered sake. Uh, So In a Strange Land is uh, obviously Yamada Nishiki 70, uh, it's got hard water and two yeast strains, uh, so it's really complex, a little bit fruity, a little bit spicy, and just has like a nice, clean, dry finish. Uh, Mountains on the Moon uh, is in ve- on the flip side is very soft water, uh, and so um, it's a sweet Negroni, but it has a slightly higher acid, so that it helps balance out the sweetness and makes it you know kind of drinkable.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So it sounds like you adjust your order, um, the mineral contents, depending, so add back some minerals or filter and do play Absolutely. With the Absolutely. Yep.
3: So all of our brewing water uh, is reverse osmosis and charcoal filtered. Uh, so we use just the, wa- you know, the local water uh, at our brewery in Midfield, Massachusetts. Uh, we filter everything. And then per style in the tank, we modify the water chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a strange land, our filtered sake is really complex and has some nice peppery notes uh, and is a little dry. So the minerality kind of helps round it out, even though it's a little drier. And then uh, mountains on the moon, our nigori sake, uh, has very soft waters, so that we get a little brighter and higher acidity to balance out all the sweetness of the unfiltered sake.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. So I got to taste both. And then uh, in the strange land, that's the FSS two zero one. I was impressed by how clean the whole thing is. And then you just Mm. clean really showcased the flavor of rice that I was looking for in sake. Mm. And um, I don't know, the texture was so silky, velvety, and I don't know how you did it. Is the minerality, or how did you do that?
3: Yeah, certainly some of the minerality uh, plays into that. Uh, Also, uh, you know, uh, Yamada Nishiki is just such a great rice to work with. Um, Some other lesser uh, quality rices are not, rices that are very good for brewing sake. Uh, You're always constantly fighting to get enough glucose, um, not only to ferment into alcohol, but Uh, some of the glucose uh, actually helps round out the sake and and make it kind of rich on the palate. And so you can sort of ferment sake longer or, um, you know, to if you want a drier sake. And so luckily with Yamada Nishiki, we don't really have to fight to get enough glucose to work with. There's plenty there to work with. So we can really dial in the sake however we want.
1: Right. And only other than, you know, to be honest, I'm not the biggest nigori drinker, but I was impressed that, again, it was very delicate and um, kind of like an elegant style. It's it's not like a coarse, a rough, um, chunky, punchy, uh, fun nigori. It's very elegant. And also, Thank you, you know, that, that's Nihon Shudo is the, you know, like a kind of sugar sweetness level. It was mm-hmm. minus 10, but... It was very subtle. It's very, almost like it it tasted um, lightly sweet, but then it just disappeared. So I was impressed. It's very elegant. Both of them are very elegant style of sake, despite the fun um, labels.
3: (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Um, Yeah, certainly uh, we're very serious. We don't take ourselves seriously, but we're very serious about making sake. Uh, And so we do have a fun sci-fi inspired brand. Uh, You know, I'm 50 years old, unfortunately. So um, all the sci-fi that I loved from my childhood is 70s and 80s. And so it's largely kind of informed by that. But we do take ourselves very seriously. So, uh, yeah, we really um, wanted a nigori sake to be much more food friendly and sort of easily drinkable. Um, So I, like you, was never a huge fan of Nikoi Sake. Um, I don't, some of them are kind of thick. uh, But then for me, I think it's missing like a counterpoint. And that's why we brew ours with an elevated and brighter acidic profile um, to help balance some of that out. And then the other thing was, I knew that I didn't want there's a style of of nigori sake called usu nigori uh, for those who don't speak Japanese so usui is thin it's like a lighter almost like hazy sake instead of a heavily uh kind of goopy sake so I knew I wanted to be more towards that side of things
1: Mm, and that happened. You made it.
3: <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, I do. I do. For uh, There are only a few nigortis that I really love. Uh, but, um, you know, Japanese brewers, I think are just looking at a really different flavor profile. And so most of them to me are very ricey. So I think mm. they're looking to kind of highlight the rice. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just not constrained by some of their, uh, sort of traditions or the the market's really different. So we could really think about it as what's going to appeal to our drinkers, but also, um, you know, what's going to appeal to us at the same time.
1: Mm, Right. Um, So you um, often mentioned already approachable style. And then I have to mention that your flagship sake, two labels Mm. uh, served in uh, uh, glass bottles in 207 milliliters, which is about seven ounces. So why did you choose a single serve glass bottle for your sake?
3: Um, So while I was writing my business plan, um, I was at home for a long time and I think I was uh, driving my wife nuts. So uh, she uh, suggested I get a part-time job uh, to just get out of the house <laughs> a couple of days a week. Uh, Cause you know, uh, you know, writing spreadsheets and, and trying to raise money and stuff is pretty stressful when you're just trapped in the house. So uh, I got a job at a, a local liquor store in my town uh, because I had never seen the retail side of sake. Um, and I was already thinking about uh all the you know Japanese cups and cans all the single serve sake that you see um, is just a much more accessible package and because most of the drinkers in at least my market in New England uh they're trying sake for the first time so Uh, you know, wanting to try sake and trying it for the first time, uh, you know, a $40 bottle is a bit of a hurdle for a lot of people. Uh, So all the Japanese cups and cans are, you know, between six and $10. And so it's an accessible way. Uh, So luckily, when I worked at the liquor store during my business plan writing, uh, they allowed me to change their sake selection. So I had this sort of theory in my head that uh, single serve might be like a really accessible way to go about making a brewery, uh, but they actually let me carry it out in real time. So I got rid of all their big bottled sake except for one bottle for cooking, uh, and then uh, I just I put about ten to twelve cups and cans from Japan in the refrigerator, like the open refrigerator uh, next to the white wine, and you know the sales of sake for the store went up, you know, dramatically. Uh, because it was almost zero to begin with. So uh, they were selling cases of one-cups and cans per week. Uh, so, you know, it was really great um, that I got to kind of test that out in real time. But I was already thinking that that single-serve would be the way to go uh, to overcome that hurdle of I'm trying something new for the first
1: time. Right. Mm. Like, and actually in Japan, uh, the salt is called the cup sake, or can't even, mm. started to be popular because I think younger generations uh, like that, cute labels or Instagram or it's just easy to drink. So I think it's going to be uh, increasing more. And uh, I think your strategy is really good. And uh, I think the right amount, seven ounces, that's really just right yeah. to enjoy. Yeah. Uh,
3: Thanks. I. Um... You know, obviously, when you when you make a decision like that, we're going to make our brewery single serve, uh, you're very inspired by cupped and canned sake from Japan, um, you know, especially like Kikusui Funaguchi, one of my favorite sake of all time. Uh, their cans are really great and impactful and they're everywhere. Uh, so, you know, you get informed by a lot of things. However, uh, that type of packaging doesn't really exist in the United States uh, inexpensively. So, so, um, you know, your only option is either a can uh, with a regular can top on it uh, or uh, some kind of small bottle, most of them clear, which I wanted to avoid uh, to, uh, you know, protect the sake from light. And so I was lucky enough to uh, contact the nice folks at Owens, Illinois. Uh, They're one of the largest glass manufacturers out there, but uh, they actually make a small Yeah, uh, 7-ounce, 207-milliliter bottle uh, that is sealed with a twist-off beer cram. Uh, And so it really worked well for our needs and allowed us to have a little fun with it. I mean, it has a beer cap on it, um, but we're selling extremely high-quality fresh sake in it. So uh, it's a little fun at the same time.
1: Mm, Right. Okay. And also, uh, I'm just looking at uh, this tap room offering, which is beyond your um, you know flagship labels. So mm. um, there you offer a flavored sake, which is afternoon on visa Sake on the shore, leave with cucumber, uh, with fresh wine, and 15% ABD, and uh, Kili's, Goran Sake, and uh, Summer Sake, uh black tea with vanilla and hibiscus and flour. That's also 15% alcohol. So uh, you used to get, you know, totally making very authentic style of sake, but I, it sounds like you're experimenting more of this flavored version. So why is that?
3: Um, it's actually something I initially put in my original business plan. Um, uh You know, I really fell in love with craft beer in America in the 90s. Um, And there used to be a lot more kind of small breweries uh, or or restaurants. And so one of the things that they used to do, uh, used to be really common in the beer industry, is uh, they would make what's called cask ale. So they would take uh, a regular beer that they had and they would put it in a cask, which is sort of a more primitive keg. Uh, And they would naturally carbonate the beer. You know, some people would throw other things in the cask like coffee or, you know, other hops, like fresh hops and stuff. So it allowed them to kind of take their regular beers and tweak them. And one of the things I always really loved uh, was they would just tap a single cask every, let's say, Thursday night or something. And then when it was gone, it was gone. And then you had to wait till next Thursday until they tapped another one. So... Uh, I really like the ephemeral nature of that, and it's very experimental and allows the brewer to play around uh, without a lot of risk, right? Because you're not making a 1,000 liters of (laughs) black tea uh, sake. You're making 20 liters in a keg. So uh, that's what we started doing uh, from the first day we were open. Uh, And really, uh, it was for two reasons. One, it's kind of... uh, Kind of a leg up or a helping hand for folks who are very new to sake and are just so, you know, there we get people who are like, I don't even know what this is. I don't know what it's supposed to taste like. Uh, and so for us to have some expressions that are flavored, um, it allows them to go, oh, I, I like lime and cucumber. Let me just try that. And they try it. They go, oh, it's delicious. And then the longer they stay there, uh, they start to try uh, unflavored sake and they love that too. So... Uh, I do like that you know, experimental nature of it, uh, but I also uh, think it's a, I don't know, kind of an education tool and it gets certain people to, to really enjoy themselves to the point where they start trying traditional stuff.
1: Mm, right. I, uh, I'm a more purist, but by looking at this new menu and just whole day like today, in New York, mm. I can just definitely go and then get one of, maybe both, refreshing um, sake with cucumber and a fresh lime or black mm-hmm. kiwi with vanilla and hibiscus. So,
3: yeah, actually, uh, so we do, you know, obviously there's a seasonality to it. I don't make pumpkin spice sake in June or whatever, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, i do make a pumpkin spice sake just put that out there but uh but yeah so um w- there's a seasonality to it but you know uh, also one of the cool things is uh we've built such a great fan base here uh in massachusetts that um our our sake we actually brewed for the summer for the tap room uh is actually not a flavored sake at all it's a uh, just a beautiful like um ginjo yeast sake and it's uh, very lightly hazy and sparkling. Uh, and so we just put out like a really traditional sort of modern sparkling Japanese sake. And it's a, it, that's our sake for the summer. And so, uh, you know, people are loving it. Um, and so the flavors are kind of cool because you can match it to the season. But the biggest hit this summer has been High Mags, which is our sparkling sake. Mm,
1: right. Well, sounds like um, it's consistent with the, you know, sake used to be, uh, still not, but the local um, mm. natural beverage you make out of what's available. So sounds like you are in line with tradition of Japanese sake production.
3: Uh, I think so, too. I think um, we're starting to see a little bit more flavored sake or experimental stuff out of uh, Japan, Japanese brewers. So uh, I'm hoping someday that maybe they look at what we're doing and go, hey, you know, I live in a town in Japan and we have a lot of apples, so let's make an apple sake or whatever. Mm. You, know? Wow. Um, you know, that, that yeah, Japanese people love the whole meibutsu kind of concept. And so um, that would be cool.
1: Right. Yeah, meibutsu, it's a regional speciality, like any cakes to beverage to anything. So, yeah, it's a very local uh, mindset, yeah. which I think it's a beauty. Yeah. Um, but yes. speaking of um, making sake in America, now there are more than... Um, like breweries in America, like even dozens of uh, sake yeah. breweries. And uh, there is even the Sake Breweries Association of North America that was founded in 2019. So, um, and also uh, this very weekend, uh, the American Craft Sake Festival happened in Saltsville, Virginia. And you are there too. So um, how do you predict the future of sake? uh made in america and poorly other countries outside of japan uh yeah
3: so there's there's um fewer than 50 sake breweries outside japan um altogether uh and so it, the number's growing but there are a lot of barriers so uh you know, I think the sake industry will slowly, very slowly grow. Uh, not as quickly as like the beer industry or something like that, but it'll slowly grow. And then as more people get exposed to local expressions of sake, um, there's, you know, the local aspect, like what you're talking about, I add, you know, largely New England ingredients. That's one thing. But uh, the other thing is... Um, You know, local sake is just fresher sake. I mean, there's no way around, um, you know, the sake has to come from Japan. And it's just not the same as when it left the brewery because, you know, it's a very long way. And so, um, you know, I think fresh sake, I'm not saying it's better or worse than Japanese sake, but I'm just saying it's a different expression. And as more people in the United States get a local brewery near them, that will start to evolve. Uh, not only their taste for different kinds of sake, but also uh, it'll start to expand the market sort of exponentially, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Yeah. In June, there is another uh, sake tasting uh, in New York. And um, I mean, a bunch of different styles of sake all by American producers. And I was amazed how Um, how much quality has improved over the years and also creativity which is not like just playful or anything it's just out of respect to the traditional flavors but then why not doing this and that to you know American people want to drink this and why not right and it's made with local water and rice and yeast and those things Um, I think uh, personally I really think that there's a big future rating of Japanese sake, which also um, goes back to Japanese uh, sake brewers in Japan to be inspired because um, it's a very hopeful movement, right? It was declining.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, in like 50 years, uh, the 4, 000, number of 4,000 brewers went down to a quarter and now it's coming back because of, you know, outside movement, the popularity of Japanese food, and associated increased popularity of Japanese sake. So I think you are part of the big force forces of the search, research of sake uh, culture, and uh, I really admire what you do? Oh, thank you. yeah,
3: I appreciate it. I mean the sake Brewing Association of North America is also doing a lot to further kind of what's going on. Um, you know, as my business grows, it becomes a little more stable. Uh, I mean, we just celebrated our first year anniversary. So, um, you know, I I would hope in the future I would have more and more time to uh, spend on, uh, you know, the association stuff uh, to help other people. But yeah, I'd also like to see some cooperation with uh, young brewers in Japan just to encourage them and say, hey, you know, you don't have to open a, you know, very expensive brewery. You could, you know, really open a brewery as a small business and uh, grow it from there. So that, I think that would be a very important uh, development if that really catches on in Japan.
2: Mm,
3: right. I mean, it certainly worked here. The beer industry uh, roughly was about you know, 40 40 breweries in the 60s. Uh, and now there's, uh, you know, north of 10,000. I've lost count. Um, but on average, two beer breweries open every day in the U.S.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so, um yeah, I mean, that would be really cool if that kind of fire swept through Japan and really just kicked off uh, younger brewers who, you know, might find it hard to work in a 500-year-old brewery. Uh, so, you know, to just go, hey, I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm an artist and I want to express myself and I can just go do it on a small scale. That would be really cool.
1: Mm, right. And also uh, Asai had uh, the makeup the Dasai uh, label, which is really uh, famous for... Being premium, and you can see that uh, anywhere, <laughs> almost in uh, good restaurants, they're coming to America, opening their brewery this fall. So, and also they became a member of the American, um, at a, the sake Brewers Association, of North America. So, I think there's a collaboration between Japan and other brewers, which I think is exciting. And uh, yeah, let's we'll see what happens. So, what are your plans and dreams?
3: Oh, my plans and dreams. Um, I really, uh, my first plan or dream, uh, my, uh, so certainly my dream is, uh, we're New England's only sake brewery. Uh, and so really, uh, the first dream I have is, I just want to be in every state New England. So uh, we're currently talking with sort of distribution partners in other states and trying to figure out what that would look like. Uh, but um, certainly my first dream is to do that. Uh, you know, be in every state, New England, and really be like a local sake brewery for everybody.
1: And eventually, uh, the International Space Station.
3: That is my plan. Yeah, or uh, maybe an official SpaceX office sake. I don't know. There's lots of <laughs> things we could do. If somebody at SpaceX or NASA or JPL or JAXA wants to call me, I would certainly pick up the phone.
1: Mm, right. So let's see. <laughs> Keep me posted. <laughs> Right, so, <laughs> Well, so where can we find your updates online and on social media?
3: Sure. Um, we have a wide range of ways to get in touch with us. So, uh, certainly, our website would probably be the smartest place if you're only going to remember one. Uh, it's just fartheststarsake.com. Uh, Don't worry, we also own FarthestStar, S-A-K-I.com, if you misspell the word sake. (laughs) Um, And so so, um, that's a great place. And there are links on there to go to our Twitter page, our Facebook page, our Instagram page. And we have a really amazing link in bio uh, connected to all of it. So uh, we update it with taproom events and uh, all of our pop-up food events and where we're going to be. Uh, around town like in stores doing tastings all of that
1: awesome and you just raised a great point point, uh, listeners we want to sound like you know sake it's not sake it's just it's not right sake <laughs> right. sake. Right. so all right so thank you so much for joining us today Todd and maybe you can come back and you know update us on what are you working on
3: oh I can't wait uh and next time I'll drive down with some sake and we can drink it on the air
1: yeah, that sounds good. And also, congratulations on all the achievements.
3: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was like the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, but uh, my whole family is behind me. So my wife comes in and works the tap room sometimes, even though she has a, a you know a very serious like actual job. Uh, and uh, my daughter makes custom T-shirts for the merch uh, stand in the tap room and stuff. So it's really a family uh, business, which is a pretty cool thing to do
1: hey hmm. right. well that's that's why your products are so um beautiful i, I i'm not just but, saying that because it's so elegant and um yeah your quality is just uh, very impressive so
3: thank right. you i i hope we can grow and maintain that same quality
1: hey right. yeah i'm sure it's gonna happen so thanks Hey, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanneeds.heritagevideonetwork.org at or akikwateyama.com. Japan Needs is the weekly program and is always available at heritagevideonetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch and Spotify as a podcast. Engineer is Liam Warner and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Bun Eats is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradonetwork.org slash subscribe.